Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Officer, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Hey guys, today's episode is one that holds a very special place near and dear to my heart. I had the opportunity to speak with Tevya Ware, who is the CFO for Operation Underground Railroad. That is a rescue uh, organization that deals exclusively with child trafficking. And I just want to read really quick before I bring the interview on their mission statement or their promise to the children. Who we pray for daily, we say, Your long night is coming to an end. Hold on, we are on our way. And to those captors and perpetrators, even you monsters who dare defend God's precious children, we declare to you, be afraid. We are coming for you. It is an extreme honor that I had the opportunity to talk to them, uh, have the opportunity to walk through what a rescue mission looks like, and some of the ways that people can help. So without further ado, I give you my interview with Tevya. I really, really appreciate you coming on with me. Like, it really, really means a lot to me. I have a a history, I guess you could say, of being exposed to um, pedophilia. Uh, there was a, a man in my past who acted inappropriately, and I was very young. And at the time, it didn't register the way it does now that I'm a grown adult. Right. And exactly. looking back and, and that situation, it, it's like, man, you know, like, I can't imagine how many kids this happens to in the world and, and they don't know. So I'm a huge advocate for your all's cause. I'm currently running a campaign to try to raise money for you guys. So I, when I heard Tim's story, I fell in love with your organization. It really means a lot to me that you guys came on. Well, thank you so much for having us. We, we need people like you to help us get the word out. So, and your story, unfortunately, you know, like you mentioned, there are so many that um, that we could be helping that we're not they're right under our nose. We're not recognizing the signs. So, it's so I want to start then to try to, to try to expose this for what it is to try uh-huh. to find a way to have my audience help. So uh-huh. start first, if you don't care. Um, tell me a little bit about the foundation of OUR. Like touch on Tim's story. Obviously, I've seen I watched Operation Tucson on um, Prime. It is one of the most touching films I've ever seen in my entire life, but kind of talk a little about how he went from the comforts of his career to now he's pursuing the organization. Can you touch on that just a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So, um, uh, Tim, uh, Timothy Ballard lived in Southern California and I'm from Southern California, um, and was a Homeland security agent, uh, who worked primarily, um, child, exploitation cases um and oftentimes you know i don't know i don't think tim actually shares this very often but um oftentimes in, within the government and hsi you have you rotate between like drugs and the different you know different mail fraud different things like that um but tim had really kind of a, an ability a gift at doing these kinds of investigations and still was able to maintain kind of his center and his sanity. And so he was working a couple of cases in Southern California um, that uh, were, that kind of were the tipping point for him. So one case involved a U.S. citizen, a, a child that was born in the U.S. and um, and then was in Haiti with his family and was kidnapped and taken. And then, um, and then the other case was, um, uh, an operation that was happening in Colombia. And there's a documentary that's coming out on that as well called Operation Triple Take. So you can watch for that. But, um, so Tim was working this case with this U.S. citizen. And at first, you know, we had the resources, but, uh, and then he was able to, he actually did a major operation in Haiti, um, that were on the orphanage where he was sold out of, um, after he was kidnapped. Um, but he, but, but this little boy, Gardy, was already sold and gone. And um, we weren't able to find any solid leads. And even though it was an amazing case, um, 
and many were rescued and this orphanage was shut down and they're serving time, um, it was a conflict because it, it technically that part, what happened right there, was not a U.S. case because the child wasn't there, even though he was, you know, uh, working on a U.S.-based case. And then at the same time, you kind of had this other um, operation going in, in Colombia that, that really started to become a multinational, more than one city. That's why you call it Operation Triple Take. And um, once again, was getting a lot of pushback that it was not a U.S. case. And while it was significant, you got to let the local town handle it um, because we can't use taxpayer dollars, right? Which Tim is very respectful of that. And and we understand how the tax system works. However, as, as a father, um, you know, and we're all mothers and fathers in our organization, um, it was it was challenging to walk away from a huge case in Colombia that really had the potential, in fact, I think it was still to date might be our largest rescue. I think it was a hundred and something uh, rescues from that one wow. case, that one night uh, in three cities. Um, so you're thinking, you know, as a parent, I've got this many children potentially being violated every day. And how do you walk away from that? And then, um, in the search for Gardy that was happening in Haiti kind of around the same time, um, yeah, we didn't get him, but we rescued all of these other kids. In fact, two kids that Tim ended up, Tim and his wife ended up um, adopting a couple years ago. So, I mean, just wonderful, wonderful story and shut down this, you know, awful orphanage. And, um, and so that's when it started to kind of just, he started to feel the pressure internally um, to, to make a change, do something that um, would allow him to pursue these cases, working in conjunction with local law enforcement, whether that's Colombian law enforcement or law enforcement here in the United States, um, and and use his ability to investigate these types of cases um, to to not just combat child exploitation, child trafficking in the United States, but around the world. And so in um, in fall of 2013, he decided to leave the government, and he didn't quite. <laughs> it was just a huge leap of faith, and um, and uh, he had six kids um, at the time, and uh, they they left, and he started a nonprofit in um, Utah to combat child trafficking. So that was kind of our founding, and then Glenn Beck kind of got on board and said, "I'm going to raise the first million." And um, and he got that done in about the first part of January, and we hit the ground running, and we have been growing ever since. So that first nine hundred and forty-nine thousand, um, you know, turned into now we've we work in twenty-six countries and twenty-seven states, and just our our budget is millions of dollars in combating child trafficking. So it's such a beautiful story, and I I wanted you to touch on the working within the other. Um, countries because I feel like a lot of times, it, at least specifically when I was watching Operation Tucson and I was watching how my my guess is that money plays a huge role in the government. Like we're talking about corrupt governments. We're talking about governments who will accept a payoff or even give a payoff. Hey, you keep your mouth shut. We won't press charges. So right. how does how does that create barriers for you guys do you guys encounter that a lot or are most governments cooperative given the nature of what you guys are trying to do yeah that is such a great question heather and i we received it especially when i'm talking about international ops but so i will say this that you know as the cfo um you know we are we do a third-party audit we're very transparent in uh, use of how of of our funds and so being able to manage things like cash when we're dealing in foreign countries is a huge concern. And so I recognize the risk of doing that. And we have had some difficult, um, difficult experiences like in that, in Operation, um, Toussaint, they, they were, they were, you know, paid basically a judge to retire and all of the traffickers were let go. <laughs> so it was a horrible experience for us because we had invested a lot of time in that op. Um, but for the most part, uh, it is amazing to me how united we are as a global population. I think 
right now um, in society and around the world with COVID and social distancing. And then, um, you know, we've got some social reform issues around the nation. Um, that It seems like I think people on the outside looking in would say you are a divided nation. And I think on many things, um, especially recently, maybe we have been, and we're, of course, in an election year, so that adds to the tension. Um, however, um, child trafficking seems to be one thing that the world can unite on. And um, these children don't have a voice. That's been, that's been our message lately with, with the other social uh, reforms that, that people are looking at, you know, in police departments and things like that, which I think there's always room for improvement. But our concern is that those without a voice um, are not able to speak. And we're seeing where budgets are cut in some areas, um, and the first place to go is, you know, Special Victims Unit, which is also usually the the uh, human trafficking unit and the child, you know, Internet crimes against child children. So, um, and so you would be amazed. So I mentioned briefly this new documentary that will come out, and I'm not sure. I think it's this fall, but I'm not. I'm not sure. Operation Triple Take in Colombia. We had quite a bit of cash. And they had to take it for evidence because you always do some seed money. We were hitting three locations at one time. And um, we knew that there was a potential for some corruption. So uh, Tim had was working with Homeland Security and the U.S. Embassy to kind of vet our partners on the Colombian side and um, really had some solid, wonderful partners uh, that we were working with on that case. And so we were able to hit these three locations at one time and, and have the rescue. And, and then it took about nine months to a year for, for that case to go through their trial, their, their court system. And the whole time, we've got thousands of dollars in evidence in a, in a evidence locker in Colombia. And yet, I can proudly say that not one dime, not one penny was taken. We, 100% of it was returned. That is so awesome. It is so awesome. It gives me chills every time I say that. And so we, we've we had some rough things. It's always tough working in Haiti and different things like that. But um, I would have to say that the officers around the world and in the United States that work these kinds of cases that are defenders of children um, are some of the best human beings I've ever met. It's funny that you say that. I, I told a couple friends that we were going to do this interview and – they, you know, they were like, ask her, you know, off the record, do they need any help? Like, if there's a situation where they can, I'm like, I don't think they're into yeah. vigilante justice. <laughs> we can't do vigilantes. They, they it would totally cause case law issues, and and we'd end up hurting the cause. That's that's why it's so important that we dot our I's and cross our T's. But we do appreciate, and and I'm, I read through the questions that you sent me, and I I'm excited to to share ways that everybody can engage. So this is something that. Regardless of party, um, race, uh, gender, uh, where, you know, your residency, we can all stand there for children. So I agree. Um, I wanted to talk through, I'm trying to decide how I want to go to the next. You kind of touched on mission, so I kind of want to just stay on that thread for just a second. Can you walk me through, like, a typical rescue mission? Like, how do you guys get involved in one of these situations? Is it just you get a yeah. tip line and somebody – you guys go with it or like what's that what what did the logistics look like training that yeah. kind of stuff how does that work so that's that's a great question i love that you asked that it's one of my favorite parts about doing these interviews is hearing the questions that get asked because i'm always i'm always impressed i'm like wow what a what a great question so let me start by saying and this kind of feeds into another question you asked you know what are the biggest misconceptions so i want to start by saying that um, there's a difference between domestic operations and international operations and that's a huge misconception because people do see our, our documentaries and things like that, and they're like, ah, this is how kids are taken. And, and then moms, you know, in Indiana or in Utah are worried about, you know, these white bands that are going to come up and next to your child, you know, the park and kidnap their kids. And yet that's not the most common way in the United States. Not that it doesn't. We have, we've had, you know, I'm sure we can all think of some really um, horrible things. But trafficking, child trafficking in the U.S. is different than child trafficking um, internationally. So I'll start with international operations because it's, it's something that um, probably most people are, are a little bit, based on our documentaries and things like that, familiar with. So 
we, so when we first started out, it was also a little bit different. We were trying to show, we were proving ourselves. And so we had to build relationships really based on Tim's relationships that he developed working cases as a, you know, a, a Homeland Security officer. And so um, that's why a lot of our first cases are in like Colombia or Haiti because it had this tie into the United States. And then as we worked these cases and other countries started to um, take notice and have started to reach out to us. So we are at this stage in our uh, life as an organization, we're about seven years old. The way it looks now, we have more work than we could ever, <laughs> ever do at this point. I and mean, we're, we're trying to scale and grow as quickly as possible. But countries are constantly reaching out to us and saying, you know, uh, this is our focus as a nation. Um, for example, we're working with, uh, recently I posted an article on, on LinkedIn. We're working with Peru, and they're a great example of this model. They reached out to us. They have seen some things that have happened uh, in, in neighboring areas. And um, their attorney general and uh, their minister of the interior and their um, minister of social services like, hey, you know, we are recognizing that we have some problems here in Peru where we have illegal mining in the north is creating this hot spot for, um, for human trafficking, but specifically child trafficking and child labor trafficking. And then um, they also border Venezuela that has been hit really hard with um, internal turmoil, which has caused major food uh, shortages, which then leads to trafficking. I mean, people do things to survive, right? And and we know that poverty and a lack of education and a lack of resources definitely contribute to uh, human trafficking uh, situations. So they reach out to us, and then we reach, you know, then we work, start working with them um, from an operation standpoint and then also from a compliance standpoint. So um, we need to understand where are their laws. So um, it was interesting to note that uh, like, they are very interested in combating uh, child sex trafficking, but especially in more rural areas of Peru, if you sell your child to go and work as a nanny or as a maid, it's not considered, it's not like you talk about it that much, but it's totally understandable. It's accepted. And it's kind of that way in Haiti as well. If it's, if they're sold along the border to help, you know, bring in food for the family, um, then it's, it's acceptable. And so understanding where they're coming from, what laws they have in place to protect children, um, and who the, the major players are, we need, we've realized that you can't go in as vigilantes, even with a great, like, local, you know, police department. They, you need the full support of the judicial system and of the community to say, no, this is wrong. Selling your child, period, is wrong. Yeah, so I feel like that's you guys are creating culture shifts, too, in some of these places where, I mean, I think specifically, you know, China, where slave labor is still very actively used for much of their production in children. So I, I think about going into a lot of these countries where, you know, the status quo for the longest time has been, well, you're able to walk, you're able to tie a shoe to get you know what I mean like I, I feel like you guys are responsible for that too you're and you're exactly right it takes this entire shift and even though you have some really great mothers and fathers and communities um it is difficult to shift the mindset like in Guatemala um you will see hardly any well it depends on what part you're in right it has one of the biggest red light districts in in um Central America is in Guatemala um, and you'll you'll see little kids on the street, uh, but but then all of a sudden you'll see this absence of kids ages five, six, seven, eight, maybe nine. They're not there. Where are they? They're in school because that's what parents do, right? They know, and they will sacrifice so they can go to school, maybe up to the second grade, the third grade. But then it becomes more important to help them. They need to get there and make tortillas or make soup or sweep the streets or do something to bring in money because they have more mouths to fill. And so it is very culturally acceptable to pull the children out of school after, you know, about basically when they are pretty good workers, which is about 10 years old. And so and so then it just 
without the education, it, you have this cycle that continues to repeat because it's just a part of their culture. So um, getting them to, to make the shift, they want to, I should say, so it's not getting them, but it's helping them to recognize that there are other options and we can truly, you know, like our slogan, break the chain and trafficking, it requires this, this change, this mentality uh, difference. But the thing is, is that um, like our, um, our director of operations now is John Lyons, who was Tim's boss's boss. It's kind of cool that he's, he's come back to work with us. And he always says, we attack this from a holistic perspective, meaning, um, so I, I've done some personally, I've been able to do some work in Nicaragua. And, um, and there was, we had a, a program there that, that helped to take them um, out of the situation. And they had to do like kind of some personal finance. They had to even just showing up on time and, you know, all these different little things to childcare. Basic life skills that they missed out on. Nicaragua is the second poorest country in this hemisphere. And so um, they would go through this three-month program, and then they would get these little business loans to kind of start. And each one, they could um, work with, a you know, a, a mentor who could help them say, yeah, you know, you can, you're going to sell beauty supplies. You're going to make soup or whatever. Well, I when I was back um, visiting a couple of years ago from one of our early cases, there was this woman, and all of her children were in school, going to school. She had this successful. She had grown her little soup business. It's just on a card table, right? But she also was including some sodas now and so proud. So awesome. It is. It, she truly, I mean, I took, I took pictures of her not that I can't share them. But it was like she broke the cycle in her family, and she, she would cry. She said, no more will my children and my grandchildren, you know, eventually her grandchildren, um, be in trafficking because there is another way. And they're in school preparing for college. And it's just, so it is. It takes this holistic community uh, engagement to to kind of shift the way that it works. So, so people always ask, so what does a typical, you know, um, operation look like? And it depends on which stage we're in. So, like with Peru, um, we've done some small things there. Um, we also helped them during COVID, some of our aftercare homes. One of the first things we do when a country reaches out to us is we immediately start engaging aftercare. So, vetting partners there because we wouldn't want to do an operation where we don't have something for them to go to where they're not back out on the street, right? That, honestly, when I first learned about your organization and I researched you guys, what I love about you is your after care or after rescue programs, the way that you guys make sure that you take somebody who is in a really bad place and give them the tools and the resources necessary so that they don't fall back into that same position. And I feel like that's what really sets you apart from any other organization that does what you guys do. It's you guys are so thorough in, in your rescues and it makes me so proud to, to do anything I can to, to further your cause. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you saying that. It's true. I think that there are good organizations out there, but the truth is, like Tim always says, the, the, the rescue, when we do an actual operation, that's just the beginning of the rescue, right? There's so much work. Actually, the hardest work is, is with the survivor themselves. I mean, they're kind of the hero, uh, in their story because I think that it takes so much courage to overcome, you know, these kinds of of um, violations of human rights, in, in my opinion. So it's uh, and that's so we we do we really work to provide those resources. So if we like in Peru, the one we're working there right now, um, we we're starting that process. So we've just started working. I've been out there. I've been to Lima. We we met with their attorney general. We've um, find some documents. We've also forged some agreements up in their hot spots. Some of these areas they've asked us to especially identify. Um, we've started, you know, who's, who is in this space? What resources can we use? What aftercare options are available? What is the culture? And uh, we talk to natives and it, so this part can take up to a year or more because of COVID and we weren't allowed to travel. We actually had to pull, we had somebody on the ground there and we had to pull them out. Um, it slowed us down even more because we can't, you can't just, we're not vigilantes. And our purpose is to establish best practices. And I'll get more into that with the domestic side, but best practices so that 
you know, these officers, these great officers that are facing this every day, you know, in their work in Peru, in Pura, in these areas, that they know how to run a case from start to finish, no entrapment, no, no bribing, right? Everything is done above board and documented so that when they take the case, that their, their prosecutors experience their success in prosecuting the case. And we get these solid, solid convictions where they're not getting out again. So um, that's a very important part of our sustainability model. We don't, you can't, with over 2 million children, we estimate being uh, trafficked a year, you can't put a Band-Aid on something like that, you know. And, and I get the, the question a lot, like sometimes our cases will only get five rescues or one, one rescue but maybe ten arrests, you know, depending on how the case was set up. And so people say this is, that's not even a drop in the bucket when you consider how many kids are out there. And it's probably unreported when you consider areas like the Middle East and African nations and things like that. So it's probably much worse than we're, we're actually estimating as a global society. So, there, you know, what, what difference do you make? Well, not only do we make the difference in that one child, and then if you estimate that a, a perpetrator uh, could violate you know, 100-plus children in their lifetime, so every arrest is very significant on a preventative standpoint. We are also um, building the community. We're building a community of, of um, frontline, you know, defenders where they can come in and, and do these cases. So a great example with that is, once again, I'll go back to Columbia. They've been on my mind a lot lately. So um, COVID hit. We were kind of working in March in Colombia, and then we had to pull everybody out. And then all of a sudden, with everything that was hitting with COVID, we had to put travel on hold. And so um, these officers had great cases going on in Colombia. We've been working with them for many years now, and they have some really powerful tools, um, you know, forensic capability and things like that. They know the best practices, and um, and yet, but we were going to have to pull out, so they were going to have to do this on their own. And they would you know, we'd contact, uh, he, they would contact our operations team, John Lyons, and, and his team, which is just astounding. They're amazing. And um, they would kind of talk them through things, but we felt, we were so worried because you have a situation where we knew the economy was going to take a hit, which was going to add to poverty and it's going to add to a lot of food and, and more, you know, this is the vulnerable population. It was going to get worse, and, and, and yet we can't do anything. And so it was really a stressful probably been the most stressful time of my career has been this time since March. And, and yet we've had donations. It's just been, I think, emotionally stressful. And we can feel the stress from our partners and, and, the, and the stress from our survivors. And so they start working this case, even though we're not there with them. And just kind of, we can't transmit um, evidence or anything like that because it could be compromised. And that would be the worst thing, right? So, um, but just in, in dialoguing with our guys, and then the case starts to get bigger and bigger, and they realize, you know, that they it had kind of this tie-in to one of the cartels. So it was, it wasn't just one jurisdiction; it was jurisdictions throughout Colombia. So it was getting big, like a huge case for these young, you know, relatively young officers, and um, and no outside resources. And then they're also dealing with COVID in their own country. Well, just like I think it was three weeks ago, they announced, and you know. In their media, and they, of course, sent us a, a huge report. It was like over they, – they did basically Operation Triple Take, but in multiple locations, huge number of arrests, huge number of rescues, more than 70 arrests, if you can believe that, during COVID all by themselves. That, that is so impressive. Isn't that awesome? I mean, they need their own documentary. I feel like it just it, – for us, it's like this is how it needs to happen, right? It's not OUR coming in um, and doing it. It's, it's – coming together as a global community and saying, how can we make this happen? And um, Well, and I think, I think that that education, and I think that's the most important thing. Like, yes, resources obviously are necessary, but teaching them to do it on their own, that's got to, that's got to feel really good for you guys. Almost like a, a little bird, you know, growing up and you took them under their wing and now they're doing it on their own. That's really cool. Oh, it, it really is. And I, I, I know, you know, I have to always, like, I get proud. I'm a mom, so I just, it's in my nature. I get super proud of all these law enforcement officers. But at the same time, um, some of our best trainings have been 
Guatemalans training Colombians and Colombians training, you know, when we break down these barriers between countries and nations and just start working together, it's, I'm telling you, it is a force multiplier. It, we can become unstoppable. So, and we've done that. We brought Guatemalans to Washington State to watch our officers and we've, we've taken them to, to Florida to, to their officers and then gotten them together and to work on these cases together and actually march through a case together and, and it's just, it, it is wonderful. It's, it's really incredible. And we have donors in Peru, you know, I mean, which is just, it's also touching. I just, um, I think that we can sometimes, I love, I love our country. So I'm, we're, and we should all be very proud. In fact, I, I'm very protective of our country in that way. But at the same time, it's great to recognize how, um, how our options are so greatly enhanced when we start to look outside ourselves, you know, and really come together. So, um, so anyway, it's incredible. And and I think I'm I'm gonna never get to the dollar amount that you're talking about. <laughs> How much does it cost <laughs> to do an operation? Because I'm like, ah. So every country we work in basically it's different. We like them to come to us. At this point in our career, we don't want them to come to us and say, What does trafficking look like in, in our country? That means they're not I think the signs are there. Uh, well oftentimes child trafficking is intertwined with drug trafficking, weapon trafficking. And it's the fastest growing enterprise in the world, criminal enterprise in the world, because it's, a child is reusable, right? So, um, so when you're, when officers are do, working these other cases, that's when they'll come on to, wait, there's a trafficking case in conjunction. It's just oftentimes they don't know what to do with it past that point. So if they come to us and they say, we know we have a problem, we can help them identify like hone in on the problem, like first when you start with your judicial system or whatever. Um, and so we can help that conversation, but uh, they come to us and then um, we go through it's almost a year process of identifying their resources, um, where they feel that they could improve. We try to get a lot of feedback and it's very collaborative. Um, where do you feel like you're short? Um, is it a crime? If, if we took it to, to court, would they get a life sentence or 20 years in jail for selling a child or for abusing a child? You know what I'm saying? And if those are not there, then we need to get that in before we try to to do a rescue because it won't be long term. And um, and so that takes about a year. And then once we've identified the needs, then we just we just spend the time and cultivate those relationships to start doing the training. We bring in trainers from the United States, specialists in different forms of forensics. Um, we also help with, uh, with obviously, they need the, the laptops and drones and, um, and also, and, you know, just we just start building their capacity while we work hand-in-hand with these cases. And then, um, and then we, pre- we just slowly, like you're teaching, you know, like you're teaching a, a new skill to anyone, you kind of start to step back and then you're pretty much just behind them going, you can do it, you can do it. And then, um, and then, and then they are. They're off and running until, you know, a criminal figures out a new way of, of transporting uh, exploitive material. And, and then we all need to step up and, and try to solve that problem. So that's pretty much our process. It's pretty it's pretty involved. It, and so Tim, Tim likes to throw out numbers, and, and we do. I could give you, as a financial officer, I can tell you that on average. You don't, you don't have to give me specific numbers. I, I guess maybe just... I think it's really important when we look at the grand scale of how you guys actually have to operate. We're talking about logistics of, you know, transportation and training and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I think it's important because, you know, people just, this cause particularly, I feel like it still pulls in the the donations that are necessary for you guys to really operate. But I think a lot of times people are like, oh, well, I don't need to donate because I'm sure they get money from this or they get money from that. So I think it's important when you talk about an organization, you guys are very transparent about how you spend yeah. the money that you have, which is also yeah. uncommon with most nonprofit organizations. <laughs> so yeah. it's, no, it's, so it's, it's you guys just really do it right. And I, it's, I yeah. think that needs to be highlighted. I well, want to move to, the United States now, because we talk okay. m- more internationally. 
I, I specifically, and I actually, I have some questions that I didn't send to you that I thought about while I was waiting. So if it's okay, I'm going to throw a couple at you that, that we weren't prepared for. So, um, just, you know, recently you, this whole Netflix thing, I'm, I'm sure that you've seen it, the cutie video with Netflix. I have a huge problem with the sexualization of children in companies like you have TikTok, Facebook, Prime, Netflix, Twitter, all being okay with this new movement of minor attracted person where we're now making pedophilia, you know, okay. And it's not okay. So where do you see that? I I would imagine that starts complicating your all's efforts stateside. It really does. And and you can tell that you're passionate about it because you even, you've identified that it, it does really complicate things. Um, and, and it becomes, as you know, kind of an issue of like freedom of expression and all these kinds of things. But the problem is um, that viola- when you violate a child like that, you are, you are violating their human rights. And I think that it, it has to always come back to that. And children, if we're not going to allow them to vote, right, which we don't when they're 10 and 11 and 12, then, then they should not be able to – you can't say, well, they like it or they like this. They're not – if we're not going to hold them accountable for voting, then we're not – we can't hold them accountable for, like you say, this uh, move to kind of sexualize children and to – Kind of slowly make it okay, like, um, like it is a part. Of, it's becoming a part of our culture, actually. Which is, so we're we're critical of these outside nations. That's why I like that you led with that other question. We're critical because oh, there's corruption there, and they do this, and people exploit their children. And yet, the U.S. Okay, in the U.S. and Canada, I should include Canada, although our data is not great with Canada uh, for other reasons. But the U.S. is the number one consumer. And producer a child exploitive material. How I know that they're disgusting, yeah. and it, it, I, yeah. <laughs> it, it infuriates me. I try. I'm trying to stay even keeled on this call, but I've gotten cold chills like six times because yeah. it makes me so angry. I, I'm working on a, a separate piece right now regarding trafficking and and pedophilia and i swear to god the fbi is going to knock on my door and think that i'm doing things i'm not supposed to be doing at this point but um my i wanted to know if you feel like this is obviously it's a political podcast but i feel like this administration has done more for for child sex trafficking than any administration in my lifetime would you say that that's probably accurate and are they helping your effort i would say that um, yes, um, you know, I, so Tim is on the White House Council. He actually leads that and, uh, with some great NGOs and the White House, we've had some, some recent work in, in and out of the country that the White House has, uh, been in constant communication with him on. And, um, and then they have actually put, they're, they're seeing the problems that may not be, it's not popular i recognize that but they are understanding the issue and i think that sometimes the americans were so worried about being pc or politically correct or not offending anyone that we're forgetting like these kids you know um and and we've got a couple of of areas that we're especially concerned about but because and i can't see them yet uh because we're very sensitive to um you know protecting um our officers and things like that but but L.A. already came out and, and kind of hung themselves out to dry when they defunded their um, special victims unit in L.A., the city the size of L.A., right? And if you keep reading through what was defunded with the special victims unit, it was ICAC, which is Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. They are the ones to combat these kinds of issues with us. They they. They can't even operate right now. There are, there's no funds for them. It was like $33 million. It's ridiculous. And so while, you know, things we're trying to be careful politically, um, what are children doing, you know? And so for me, I've been very, very grateful for this administration because they have um, taken an interest in those that don't have a voice. And I'm, um, I'm especially grateful. We are, we, I always try to be very careful in that we're, you know, we're bipartisan, of course, 
but um, I am going to support any kind of effort that protects children. And I've been with him in those congressional hearings and the Senate hearings that I'm sure you've seen where he's testified before Congress, before Pelosi, before others, uh, Senator Lee. And um, it it is uh, it's very hard to watch. It is. Just, it's yeah. It makes you cry. Like it. Yeah. I have two children. I have a one-year-old and an eight-year-old, and I I want to I want to talk about some other things here in a second. But just watching and and seeing the lack of morality that is in this world right right now is heartbreaking. But something that that I find you touched on L.A. defunding their um the ICAC the the problem that I have is the Justice Department just came out. I think it was like on August first. And they released 87 names of individuals that were in fairly high-ranking positions on mm-hmm. both sides of the political aisle that yeah. were guilty of child pornography, trafficking children, sex with minors, oh horrible, God. horrific crimes. 87 right. people in that, high-ranking yeah. positions. You've got the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing and all of that stuff. Right. Like, oh, it is. Yeah. And, and it's not it's not a partisan issue. Right, exactly. It shouldn't be. It should never be made no. a partisan issue. Right. And it's men and women. It's also not a gender issue, you know. And so, you know, we need to get out of this stereotype and just attack the problem. It's wrong, you know, and, and, and be willing to stand up as citizens. And then as as mothers and fathers, you know, within our own home communities, helping our children to understand that it is – they. There's no justification for that, you know, that, oh, you asked for it or, or whatever, and, and the shame mentality that we tend to have, I think, on this new social media-type environment. I'm so glad you touched on that because my next question is Internet safeguards for kids. My guess is, yeah. and I don't know this, I haven't found yeah. any data that supports this, but my guess is that the Internet is where, especially in the United States, the majority of these crimes start. Absolutely. The Where you've got a man or a woman enticing a 13, 14-year-old girl on yeah. some on TikTok or whatever, yeah. and that's how they disappear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they are. They're preying on a vulnerable population. And oftentimes, we don't see them as vulnerable population. We see them as they're coming from middle-class homes or affluent homes. or And then, you know, the, the American, our culture, the the tendency is then to cast blame, is to say, oh, well, the school wasn't doing this for them, or the parent wasn't doing this for them, or both parents worked, or, you know what I mean? And we need to stop casting blame and shame and and just make a, a concerted effort to go after these guys who are preying on children um, through the Internet. The Internet is now a part of our um, our culture, and, and the grooming and the... Um, the need to make your life absolutely pristine and per- perfect, you know, this outward-facing thing, leaves our children very vulnerable because no one is perfect. We all make mistakes. No one's body is perfect. And there isn't a perfect out there, you know. And and so, but that's not, I can tell you, I, I yeah, the number of cases that are going through my head right now where in different parts of the United States, Florida, Utah, um, Washington State, these kids are coming from wonderful homes, loving families, and yet they're falling victim to this kind, these tactics that are on the Internet. Well, I know that you guys do a, like a signs of trafficking training. Does that include a, a level of education where um, somebody listening might be like, well, I, you know, my kids are on their phones all the time. They're always on these social media sites. Do you guys do any sort of like education for technology unsavvy parents to kind of educate themselves on where their kids are spending their time. Right. Yeah. Tim actually has some that he personally does um, that he, it's just his own kind of creation um, because he's passionate about youth. They have nine kids. Um, And we we're working on that right now. So we do have the signs of trace signs of trafficking um, and it's free online um, that you can go on and take it and get a certificate in the end. And it kind of brushes on it, but we've been asking for some real, you know, be, feedback from other NGOs in our space, like where can we improve? And um, and then just doing the training myself, 
it's, this is a moving target. And then COVID took it into, you know, put it on steroids, right? Like one report that we read was 90% increase in trafficking online because since, since March, we've compared the numbers pre-March and then after March. And so way more kids online. And that, that's once again changed it. And, you know, where we could, um, at least, you know, when I, when my youngest is 15, I have four children. Um, a lot of times I would just put a, you know, like a piece of tape over the camera on the, on the laptop, right? Because you didn't, you didn't do Zoom conferences that often. They had to write papers and do the internet. And I have the filters on my internet, but, um, I wasn't worried about this chat thing and TikTok and all those things. And, you know, you can't do that because they're, that's how they're, they're meeting as a class in California is only virtually, you know, and so we're having to adjust again. So I guess my long and short answer of that is we have one on there, and it is appropriate for kids, especially uh, once you get in that upper middle school to high school age because it's not, we're not graphic. We're not, we try not to be a fear-based organization. We try to be an empowerment organization, and that's really important to me too as a mother. So um, where we educate and and help people recognize and so they feel strong and know what they, where they can stand up. So we have that on there. But uh, we are working on four different trainings right now. That One's specialized for um, medical staff, uh, the hospitality industry, like hotels and things like that, the trucking industry, and then one that's specifically based on Internet safety for kids and their parents. So that will, we hope, have the latest, with, you know, they, we didn't have TikTok a few years ago. So it's, it's got, it's, we've got to just really keep up with, um, the latest in internet safety. Well, I've, some research that I was doing not too long ago, right now, South Korea is currently suing, uh, China for yeah. taking the data for, of minors and using it for what purposes God only knows. Oh, right. But, I I I don't even have TikTok on my phone, and I certainly wouldn't yeah. allow my daughter to use it. Right. How do we yeah. help people understand that it's not private information? So your little girl right. dancing on camera can make it anywhere. Like it, I don't know. Yeah. I just so hard for me. It is, and it's especially hard, I think, for um, in some you're um, you know several years younger than I am. Obviously, um, if you're you've got a one year old, so. <laughs> But um, it's hard for us, I'd say, in my generation, because we are kind of that crossover where um, I still took typing in school, so I'm embarrassed to say. I think I'm older than you think. I just had my one-year-old really late. I'm 37, so. Oh, well, you're still not in in my area, but I, my youngest is 15, but I am so proud of you for for doing that. I Having kids has been my, my greatest joy, but we... We're still a little bit behind the game in understanding how accessible things are. Um, and so I think that's where podcasts like this and um, and the stuff that we're trying to do, kind of our grassroots approach, I'm sure you've seen a lot of that going on. Like, I can tell you some neat things that are happening in Indiana. So I'm, I'm I know I, ha- I saw you guys had a, a shouted out kind of party kind of thing up in Indianapolis, and I just couldn't make it up there, so... Yeah, we do, and we're we're getting ready to do another an ESD dog, in conjunction with some another uh, ch- a church down there. I think is the one that we'll be doing a lot of the sponsoring. We'll help with some of the equipment, and those are dogs that go in after you serve a search warrant, and um, they are trained to detect the adhesive used in in electric devices like a laptop. No way. Yeah, it's super cool. If you haven't seen that, like our part on the website on that is awesome. It it's kind of it's it's a new technology. Um, it, it was actually it's kind of really cool. A fireman, they were he was working on a case um, where they were looking for accelerants using dogs to look for accelerants. And because, like I mentioned, these cases tend to have all these over. You know, if you're doing drugs, a lot of times you're also trafficking in in illicit material and things like that. You have a little bit of this crossover, and for whatever reason, it was just amazing. He he said, I wonder if you could teach a dog to detect electronic devices, and and it works, and these dogs are amazing, and there's one going to Indiana. We are so excited. Like, it just, 
anyway, I'll, I'll be out there in that area just to kind of um, do a meet and greet with the dog and the handler. And yeah, we're super excited. And it's, it's a long process. Again, we're talking about a long process because see, if an officer, it's not like we can just go purchase a dog and get them trained and, and give them off, right? They have to be able to support the canine. That means all the vet bills, all the food. And then the officer is paid, they're in a different bracket when they're trained to work with the canine officer. And then their vehicles have to be upgraded. And and then their insurance, like, they take on additional liability. And so it really is, like, uh, it's, it's just, it's a very big process. It works, you have to work with the city council and with the county sheriff's office and with the task force. They have to be ICAC affiliates and all of these things, even to just get a dog placed with them. And so you can imagine, even domestically, that there's, there's like, you know, hurdles, red tape that we have to go through to, to get these resources to the officers that need them. So it's awesome. And here everybody wants to defund them right now, but that's an opinion for another day. Um, yeah, yeah, I won't go there. But, yeah. <laughs> I so want to ask you two more questions. questions. Yes. Um, first question, this is, again, one that I didn't send to you, but do you think things like Pizza Gate, Wayfair Gate, things of that nature, do you think that hinders your all's efforts because – they're unproven and that's what gets the attention. And then if for some reason somebody thinks it's a conspiracy theory or whatever, mm-hmm. it diminishes the efforts that you guys are actually making. And it's like child trafficking is not really that bad guys. And <laughs> I feel like those types of things hurt you guys more than they help you. So I would agree with you. Yes and no. So I did on July 30th, I did a podcast on the East coast. It was called, um, the Daily Mojo or something like that, and it was great. It was great, but the focus definitely was on the current scandals, and we had already determined just kind of our you, – we, you allow the officers that are, are as a buddy assigned those cases, and we're trusting their, their intel and stuff, but it kind of – it looked like it was obviously, you know, conspiracy type thing and was not – it was not legitimate from the beginning. So um, we were that interested. And the fact that there was so much media focus on that um, really frustrated me. I think I, I get asked me about one other case, and I was like, seriously, guys, I could tell you things right now that you would not – you wouldn't be able to sleep tonight if I told you. We can't even – you think about all the things that we post on the Internet, and yet we don't post half the stuff that we see. We can't. There, it, would, it, would turn, it would turn the audience away. It, it is really, really – really hard as a human being and, and you know and our guys uh, we you know they have to get therapy it's some of them just have to step away it, it can be so damaging especially when you're talking about organ trafficking in some countries and we there are some even things that happen in the united states there's a really horrible case in florida that it, it still haunts me so um so in that way you know i would say i would have agreed with you but since then <laughs> We have had a lot of people wanting, looking for answers. And then in that way, it's beneficial because we want them to come and ask. And, and how can we get involved? And what is true about this? Because the truth is, it's way worse than any Pizzagate, any, uh, you know, Epstein. That was awful, right? But we're talking about a very limited thing when, when in our ops, in, this, in the operations where we support Domestic officers, um, so let me, I'll just give you, like, I'll just throw something out really fast. So we do, we do these undercover chat things. We don't do them. Officers always do it. We just support law enforcement. We, we help with the training. We make sure they have the right tools and, and the right um, methods for analyzing and preserving data for so that the uh, victims of trafficking are not victimized again through the court process. So we've got all these things, right? Well, one of the the online mediums for trafficking is is Craigslist. We all know of Craigslist, right? And um, we can post an, our officers will post a, an article, you know, an ad up, and within an hour, Craigslist will get it down. They will pick up on the fact that it is bad, and they will pull it off. But in that hour, we will have more than 100 hits, and oftentimes the arrest they will show up. People show up. To rape a child, and and the rest are you know more than more than twenty, upwards of forty every time. <laughs> that, that is way worse than Epstein. 
So. It really is. And and that's the other thing. Like, I feel like in the United States, the way that our justice system works, I have, obviously, I can share my opinions way more than you can. But yeah. I, I'm of the opinion that, okay, if you are found guilty and you are convicted, there's no more of this. Like, let's let you hang out and have three meals a day in jail for, you know, 15 years for you to just get out and do it all over again. I'm more of the thought, I, I'm ready for like, here's a, a noose, here's a firing squad. The family of your victim gets to choose what you get and, and goodbye. Like, if you are going to rape children, like, I have no sympathies yeah. for you. I don't think you should exist anymore, period. So, yeah. last question, you kind of touched on it, but how can the general community really help and volunteer? Like, what okay. can we do to help you guys save more children? Okay, and and I love that. And I had so many. I had lots of stuff here because you mentioned you loved aftercare, so I had some fun things that are going on in aftercare. So, but if I just to sum up, you can. Do, I mean, you can say that too. I I have all the time in the world, so feel free to touch on that because that's like I said, my favorite part of you guys. Yeah, well, we're and we're doing so many things, but I'll I'll end with this. So, um, we get that question a lot, and actually. It's been great lately with the uh, with the extra attention and pe- people reaching out because they want to help. And so uh, we always say, go to OURrescue.org and click on Become a Volunteer. And even though we may not, like we've got doctors, lawyers, um, we've got uh, therapists, uh, homemakers, you know, I can help do this. Or, uh, you know, just anyway. We've got little kids that do um, make candles. There's a cute little girl in the Midwest that makes candles and sells them and sends her change. It is so sweet the way people find their own gift and get involved. And and maybe, like, we, we've got a great volunteer system, great leaders. We have over 44,000 registered volunteers. Like, you have to go through a training to be one of our registered volunteers. And this gives us a huge database because I can, if we've got somebody testifying in New York, uh, we can go to New York, and, and maybe this girl has had equine therapy, right? And we'll be like, do we have anybody in the New York area that could donate some equine therapy, you know, therapy classes so that she can have this ability to kind of decompress after after a trial? And we have somebody. It is amazing. It's this huge network um, that's not just within the United States. Uh, we've got them in London. We've got them in Australia, Canada. You name it, we've, we've got volunteers there. And so... I guess that's my first thing is is go be a volunteer. Even if you're like, I don't know what I can offer at this time, you you never know what we need in your area. And it's great to just have these resources for law enforcement, for aftercare, for um, um, for everyone. It's just it's amazing. The other thing that we always say is become an abolitionist. And so um, that's a group that we, that they have a recurring donation that's like, it, some, we have one donor that's $1 a month, seriously, but he's been donating $1 a month for the last seven years. And you know what? It makes a difference. Every dollar makes a difference. And, and if you go onto our website, and we're audited uh, by a third party every year, um, 85 cents out of every dollar goes directly to the operations, the aftercare. And uh, we only five cents is for overhead. And, and that makes sense. We've got to have insurance. We've got to keep the lights on and um, equipment and things like that. So, um, so become an abolitionist. That's a great way. But I, I am an avid reader and I'm a, um, I love especially young people and I'm passionate about, um, empowering youth and, you know, the high school age and, and, um, just regular people. And so, um, I read all the time. And one of my favorite stories, if you don't mind, I'll be on a different story next time we talk, but, um, is about Harriet Tubman. She's one of my biggest heroes in life. And she's, it's again, a woman who is just, she's just average. And in fact, she, she had so many health conditions from being beaten as a slave. And, and then she, you know, the name that she's known by Harriet Tubman is not even her actual name. She took her mother's name and her husband's name. And, and both are, I think, symbolic. We don't know, you know, why necessarily she did that. But it, for me, it's symbolic because she was, um, her desire was always to help free her family. And so um, and she would do these save up all, everybody knows, if you go through school, you know the stories, right? She would save up during uh, her resources, during the um, 
summer and then, or during the winter and working as a, and then she would escape and, and go and use all that she had to, um, bring back more family members. And she did like 19 of her own operations and, and rescued like, um, I can't remember how many people right now. I don't know why it's not coming to me, but you know, in the 30s, 40s, you know, like a lot of people, it was hugely successful. And I've always admired her for the sacrifice that it took to rescue even one for her. And it was very dangerous at the time in the 1860s and 1850s. But this story just kind of came out of obscurity recently and I love it. So later on, she'd already testified before Congress and, and done uh, amazing work and she's getting older um, and then the Civil War starts. And um, at one point she was on at the, um, um, with uh, General Montgomery along the Combahee River in South Carolina, you know, the banks of, in South Carolina, and they were doing a raid on a plantation. And she was just there with General Montgomery, who was an abolitionist. And, um, and the idea was to try to rescue as many slaves as they could. And um, he signaled with the steam, you know, horn, to, for them to come to the ship, but in and they the slaves immediately picked up on what was going on and were grabbing the nearest boats and kayaks and canoes to try and get out there and they are literally I mean it's the piling so full just take just running with what they have on them and grabbing their children and things like that that the the boats start to sink and then worse like there are slaves edge of the river that won't even let go of the boat and not out of malice they're just it's just that terrifying feeling like, don't leave me, you know? And so they're, they're not even letting the ships go out to General Montgomery. And General Montgomery had uh, Harriet Tubman on the ship with him, and he says, you need to do something, say something to your people. And she said, you know, something like, uh, they're, they're not any more my people than they are your people, meaning we're all people, right? And I've never met them before just like you. We have a different color of skin, but... We're the same in that I don't know them any better than you do, and they don't have any more respect for me than they do for you. But then, and, and then when she described it, she she had almost a little bit of panic because even though she'd spoken before Congress, this seemed different. What could she say in this moment of need to help everyone to calm down? And she and and it was to her own peers, right? And and so um, after a short pause, she started to sing a gospel spiritual. And immediately, everybody calmed down and, um, and and let go of the canoes, let them go out. And it was just all this, you know, they just got into this rhythm and there was the, the panic left. And um, and she, it was just it was something that she had done since she was a little girl, which was just seeing. And it wasn't, she was known for her coded songs, but this was just a familiar gospel spiritual. And that day, they stayed just shy of 800 slaves because she found her voice. So I guess my concluding message is that each of us, whether we're 12 years old and selling, you know, making candles or we're sticking out for someone in our class or like you, using your skills as a, you know, a, a, a political commentary and, and as a mother and your own insights, your own personal um, burden that you have, the experiences that you've had that have, have attracted you and, and invited us to come and speak and get our message out. You're, you're finding your voice. You're making a difference. And, and I, you know, everyone that hears this podcast, I hope that they recognize that whether they're looking in their car or, 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 um, you know, a class or cleaning or mopping the floor, whatever it is, doing laundry, that each of us has an opportunity. We can recognize the signs of trafficking and become educated. We can, um, empower young people around us. We can empower our neighbors. We can empower our frontline defenders, like like law enforcement, um, we can do our best to elect great leaders who will um, really protect freedom and and all freedom, you know. And um, so that I guess that is my challenge. I was on your your podcast uh, page, and it said, "We the people hold the power in this country." And I thought it gave me chills because I was like, "Oh my word, that's my message this summer in the in the conversations that I've been." you know, having with people is that we, the people, we have the power. It's O-U-R, we are working so hard to make a difference. Um, and we think we've cut some good tools and good methods and good process. Like we really try to look at it from the victim perspective, from the survivor perspective, from the community perspective, from the Justice Department. We are trying to attack this as a whole. But even then, it will not be enough without 
every one of us rising up to end uh, child trafficking. So I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk. Your message is so beautiful. I love it so much. It makes me so happy. Like, I'm about to start crying, so I'm going to get off of here. <laughs> I just, I'm so thankful for you guys, and I just, I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much, Heather, for having us on. Thank you for what you're doing. I did see the titles of your other um, episodes, and I've got to go listen. They look awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> right up my well, alley. I, it's funny. My friend is a Border Patrol agent, and he and I talk very frequently about child trafficking and, yeah. you know, what he encounters there on the border, which he can't share a lot with me. But it's it's a problem, and I think that yeah. more people need to be okay with talking about it. It's it is yeah. ugly and it is dirty and it is not exciting, but it is here yeah. and it is constant. So I think and that it, it goes through our border. We need to, <laughs> we need to, yeah, for, if anything, we need to protect our borders for that, for that reason. So. Yes, ma'am. Thank yeah. you so much, Tevia, for taking the time. I look forward to future interactions. Please stay in contact and take care. Hug your kiddos. All right. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death!